millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at you. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. I'm your host, Ada Pajajski, and this episode I talked to artist Holly Graham about sugar. Holly is a supremely talented artist working in London and as you'll hear, sugar is a material which has run throughout her practice for the last few years, both as a substance and as a sort of inspiration as well. She's also um, a good pal of mine and I've been trying to get her on the podcast for ages so I'm really glad that the UK lockdown finally gave us that opportunity to really sit down for an extended period of time and have this chat. Holly and I met at university. She's one of those annoyingly multi-talented humans um, because she's also an excellent singer and we've played in the same Funk and Soul covers band for I think I guess like 10 years now which is kind of a scary, scarily long amount of time. Um, and because we hang out in that kind of guise, I've always been aware of her work, but um, since we're usually preoccupied with like rehearsals and gigs and stuff, um, it was actually so nice to really take some time and hear about her work, you know, at length for this podcast. But um, anyway, enough about our forgotten youth. Uh, let's get into this conversation. I started by asking Holly how she became interested in sugar. I think I developed an interest in sugar um, over, yeah, over a bit of a period of time, really. I was um, doing some volunteering at the V&A a few years back um, where I was sort of giving tours um, as part of a sort of cohort of African heritage tour guides. Um, and we were sort of trained up to look at the Europe galleries, I guess with like a critical eye and also thinking about an African presence in Europe throughout the time period that those galleries span, which is like 1600 to 1815, I think. Um, and one of the objects that was in the galleries and that became sort of part of my tour were these sugar bowls um and yeah they were just they were really interesting objects they were flanked by these sort of figures fig figurines um of uh they're meant to be representing 
um, Africa and the Americas. So depictions really, and like quite caricatured depictions of, um, I guess, like the labour, the enslaved labour that was like producing um, this substance, the sugar, which was um, really kind of flooding Europe at the time. Um, and that was like fueling the European economy. Um, so I was really interested in these bowls because they were like luxury goods in themselves. They were made out of porcelain and they were sort of, yeah, a product that only, you know, very wealthy people would have owned and that would have, uh, that they would have displayed on their tables for when guests came round, maybe for afternoon tea or something. Um, but that they were this like visual testimony i guess to um to a very exploitative trade um and that they like really told the story of how that product had arrived on the table um so yeah i'd been doing that and then i also had a studio where i was sort of um my yeah my studio is in woolwich and it's just opposite um tate and lyle factory no way i'd it is, yeah. So I'd been like staring at Tate and Lyle for like ages and just like thinking about it like loosely in the background, like, yeah. you know, and it's still active and like there's still big uh, boats that sort of like come along and like deposit, I guess, raw sugar. I don't really know. And like wow. they take take stuff up in like huge like I, I don't think they're called buckets but that's what they look like <laughs> um and then there's like steam coming out of the towers and stuff so it's yeah it's still a very active um factory um and then yeah a couple of years ago I was invited to make some work for a a gallery cafe um so it was Jerwood Arts the project space there uh, which was located in the cafe and all of this sort of like research I'd been doing previously and the sort of latent, I guess, thinking that had been like bubbling away, it felt like a perfect context to sort of bring some of those conversations out. Um, though I was quite resistant to it because obviously it's a really difficult history and therefore it's quite a difficult thing to make work around and to make sure that that's done like responsibly and yeah, Um but yeah, I ended up making a body of work, um, which was sort of audio based. So I was talking to some of the other tour guides that I'd been working alongside and trained alongside um, and also had a sort of visual element, um, which was in the form of these sugar lift etchings um, on steel. And so the etchings were not printed on paper. It was the sort of metal plates themselves that were exhibited um, and they were made using a process um, yeah, that uses sugar to create these tonal elements as well. Nice. So you, you were using the material as kind of like as a chemical as well as it, as a kind of political substance and exploring um, all of that space as well. So what is this process of sugar lift etching then? Because you sent it to me in our little email exchange and I'd never heard of it. So I'd love to hear a bit more about kind of how you do it and what it involves. Yeah, it's it's really cool actually like it's um I think one thing about printmaking materially is that it has a lot of big reveals so 
it's quite an exciting process to work with because although there are some things you do um, within the processes that are very like direct there's a lot of things that you don't have any control over and that when you're sort of like doing the next phase of the process you're like what's gonna happen what's gonna what's gonna be on the other side um so yeah with sh- with maybe to start just with etching um itself usually with etching you're using a metal plate um so that could be any number of metals it could be steel or zinc copper um aluminium um and usually you have a flat a flat plate of this metal um and etching is part of like a series of um or a, a collection of sort of printmaking techniques or processes um called intaglio or sort of linked to engraving so in this process um you're using a plate and making indents on the pe- on the plate and it's those indents that you sort of rub the ink into and when you print from the plate the ink within the grooves or within the sort of bits that are kind of lower down on the plate print onto the plate onto the paper <laughs> yeah that makes sense yeah um and so that's like in contrast to say relief printing which some people might know like a lino print or a potato print where you roll ink onto the surface and it prints on the bits that are raised not the bits that have been carved away or dug out of um so yeah so that's etching and usually the way that you do that is that you would expose the metal plate to acid or a mordant so um I found out which I feel like I used to know this but I was reminded of it recently (laughs) like the other day when I was like thinking about this podcast um that the word mordant um is rooted in latin and it means um to bite I believe and we talk about that a lot in etching uh we talk about like allowing the acid to bite the plate or what depth of bite the acid has um so yeah I think that's quite a nice like visual as well for like how the acid eats away at the metal um so what you need within etching to create an image is you need usually an acid resist so you're layering on onto the plate before you do anything else um a layer like a waxy resin maybe or a varnish and then you're taking away areas of that either with like a tool or another process like within sugar lift which we'll talk about in just a second um and those areas that are exposed say you scrape away at that waxy covering um are then eaten by the acid when you put that into an acid bath so (laughs) if if that all makes sense um with sugar lift with the process of sugar lift um you're using Um, a sort of sugar solution um, as part of um, the process of revealing areas of the plate um, to then be eaten by the acid. So the full process would be that you'd have your your metal plate um, and then you'd have a sugar solution and that might, it could easily just be like water and sugar, a syrup, Um, but traditionally it would have been like coloured somehow so that you'd be able to see it on the plate. Um, so originally it might have been like, uh, Indian ink 
mixed with sugar or more recently it might be camp coffee which I don't know if you know it but it's like a a chicory based very sweet uh, syrup which is used to make a sort of coffee substitute they sell it in Sainsbury's it's pretty old school but (laughs) um, I have a friend who says that it's really nice (laughs) Um, (laughs) but yeah so another like the reason that's used is just because it is basically syrup but it's it's dark so you can see it it shows up on the plate um and so usually you then paint your design whatever that is onto the metal um and a really nice thing about um about this process is that usually you can like pick up some really interesting marks so if you're painting onto a plate it picks up, up often like the brush marks so you can get like quite a painterly mark on something that's actually like metal which is like you know very exciting if you're an art nerd <laughs> like me yeah so you paint paint it onto the plate and then you wait for it to dry or you can like dry it a bit with the hair dryer and it sort of goes a bit tacky and then you pour over varnish and so in this case your varnish is your acid resist and usually it'd be quite thinned down with like white spirit if you're using if that's like the base so I usually use like a bitumen based varnish um thinned down pour that onto the plate um so it has a really thin covering and then you put it the plate in hot water um and it's yeah I guess that's where like the big one of the many big reveals comes in because you've got this plate which is just basically black um and it's quite scary because especially if you spent a long time like putting your image onto the plate then to just cover it in this like black uh varnish or yeah it's quite uh quite a move but you put it into the hot water and you start to see like little bubbles um in where you where you've put down the sugar um and slowly those like open up and then you can use like a brush or a feather if you want to get old school to (laughs) to start to like um disturb the uh the water a little bit and to help the um sugar sort of start dissolving and lifting um the varnish off in those areas and so that's how you create your image in a sense in that you've revealed those areas that are then going to be bitten by the acid amazing and that's all because sugar loves water loves dissolving in water yeah chemistry (laughs) yeah (laughs) I was really amazed by the level of detail that you were able to get I had a look on your website at um, some of the etchings I was amazed by Mm. a the level of detail that is possible and b the the contrasting shades that are possible because Mm. in in like some of the other printing processes that you described, it's either colour on or colour off. There's no, that in a very basic way, I felt that there wasn't much room for nuance, but I was really, mm. it was kind of delightful in a way how much shading is possible with this approach. Yeah, well, so there's, so for, there's a couple of things there, which is that often sugar lift is used alongside another sort of uh, sister technique um, called aquatint which is a method for creating like layers of flat tone and with that you sort of lay on a dust resin you burn or you like melt on a dust resin and when you put that in the acid that acts as the acid really uh resist sorry 
So you can put it in for different lengths of time. Ah, um, okay. And the longer you put it in, the deeper the bite goes into the little, mm-hmm. you know, holes between the, the bits of resin. Um, so you can use both sugar lift and aquatint together to like reveal different areas for different lengths of time. So you can you you can create like a different yeah tonal variation that way. Ah, okay. Um, so you don't just dip once. You could do a series of dips for different lengths of time. Yeah, exactly. Okay. With different amounts of the plate revealed. Um, but in my case, I've used a slightly different process, which is that I've screen printed the sugar on. Um, so I use treacle uh, because it has a different consistency um, and because I wanted to work sort of like directly with the photographic imagery. Um, so, but I didn't use aquatint. So, yeah, there is like a real uh, variation of tone there, but that's more created by like the photographic image. And yeah, how that's sort of built up. Nice. If, if um, that makes sense. It does. It does. It all makes sense. Um, so we've mentioned the different metals that you can do it on and yeah. the substances that you can use um, to protect the metal against the acid. What are the acids that you're using to attack, to bite the metal? So it's <laughs> a good question. So, so it depends on what uh, metal you're using. So usually you'd pair whichever metal you're using with like, with a, an acid that like corresponds and yeah I think it's it is quite interesting that like as an artist I don't know a lot about the chemistry of this I sort of just like take it for granted so I know that like with um steel I'd put it in like ferric acid but you know and I can like hazard a guess to as to why that might be but I don't really understand <laughs> um and I'm sure you probably have a lot more information about what is going on. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I mean, I would like to say that I did. I'd actually have to do quite a lot of reading to understand <laughs> exactly what it is. But I do remember um, the only etching processes that I'm familiar with are in in my undergraduate like labs at uni. Um, we would have to study metals under a microscope and all of the different grain structures in the metals. And... Mm the process was really long and dull, but basically you have to put a piece of metal and embed it into kind of resin puck, a bit like sort of an ice hockey puck or like a like a, mm. a squat cylinder shape. And then mm. you have to grind and polish that for hours so that the surface is really, really smooth. And then you have to dip that in acid. And like you were saying, which acid depends on which metal, but mm. the acid attacks the little... the boundaries between the grains and like increases the contrast of what you're looking at down the microscope um mm. but yeah that's that's all I know about etching all I remember is that once we had a really terrifying acid um called HF I think it's like hydrofluoric acid um mm. and that's an acid where if you get any on your skin or like any body part um it will like eat into the flesh immediately and like attack oh your bones word. and stuff it's really ah, horrendous that's so scary <laughs> and yeah, we had I... to yeah use that as undergraduates and I just remember like holding this piece of metal like my hand shaking in a little beaker of acid anyway oh, hopefully the ones you're using are significantly less dangerous <laughs> yeah I think I think they are yeah with so I've been doing a lot of etching on aluminium in more recent work um and 
with that, I've been using saline sulfate. Um, And I've like taken that into uh, schools for workshops and like other places. And that's like, you know, it's it's pretty like okay and it doesn't give off any like really harmful gases i believe it only just it only gives off hydrogen cool um and then and it's quite exciting to watch as well because it's like you have these like copper sulfate crystals which are like this really bright turquoise nice and then you've got uh just like table salt so that's like obviously very familiar um substance um and you mix those together with hot water or warm water um, and then you've got this like amazing like greeny blue liquid, um, and then when you put the aluminium in, it's like <laughs> nice, <laughs> and so it's like really exciting to watch, but not like scary in yeah. most unless you like put too many in. Um, and then it, it's nice to see as well because the copper like separates out, and so you get like this quite like muddy copper residue forming at, at on the top actually at first but then it sinks to the bottom so you can really see like it's quite weird for me to like look at these crystals and think that there's copper in them but yeah like seeing that transition is cool so you sort of hinted a bit there at quite a long history of sugar lift etching how long has this process been about um so we know that like etching or engraving more really dates back to like antiquity um, and we've like seen that on like bones and into shells and like precious stones and things. And I think also etching processes using like um, alkali as well as acids um, to eat away at the surfaces of some of those materials is like um, you can sort of see that in different ancient civilizations. Um, but I think I believe the first etching on paper um, was made in 1515 um, by Dürer and it's quite well known so uh, you might have seen the image kind of circulating um, and it's of a rhinoceros. Um, Oh yeah but by someone who'd never seen a rhinoceros is it that one? Yeah Yeah. (laughs) and and I think that's really interesting in and of itself because it really speaks about the time so Dürer was German and spent like quite a bit of time in Italy um, but a European artist um, making a sort of image of quite an exotic creature, um, which wouldn't have been anywhere nearby, but which would have be, maybe uh, been from like being told about what this creature looked like um, and um, maybe from other other depictions or drawings. But it really kind of um, reflects the sort of beginnings of expansion and travel and exploration, um, which then kind of took on a colonial legacy um, later, at a later or at, from that time forward, actually. Um, but prior to that, also, I guess, etching processes had been used more for things like armour making and like jewellery um, and silverware as well. And so... Uh, apparently a lot of the sort of early artists who were making etchings on paper actually had backgrounds in like silversmithing and other processes, um, which I thought was quite interesting. But yeah, the first we hear of sugar lift as a process is a little bit later. Um, So an artist called Paul Selby 
um, in 1776, uh, coined the term sugar lift as well as aquatint, actually, although we sort of know that aquatint experiments were happening a little bit before that. Um, so, yeah, I think that's also quite interesting and a sort of reflection on the time as well, because 1776, I mean, yeah, end of the 1700s, that's sort of the height of the sugar trade. And um, I guess which is inextricably linked to the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade. Um, so it makes total sense that maybe artists would have been starting to experiment with this material at a time when it was becoming um, sort of more present um, in Europe. I mean, it has other histories um, of being used as an artistic material in quite different ways. So um, so one of the ways that that was um, would have been for making sort of figurines, decorative figurines for tables, for like dinner dinner tables, um, for big feasts and things. So those were called subtleties, um, which is quite a cool name because I can't imagine they were very subtle. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they were really like a huge show of like wealth and power. Um, and yeah, and those would have been in all sorts of different forms. Like they would have depicted animals and buildings and sometimes they carried religious messages um, or, yeah, quite often sort of like uh, less less overt or more overt political messages. Um, and, yeah, so I guess that's like one way that sugar would have been used but as, a, as an artistic material. But at that time... Um, it was so, like, scarce and rare and the supply um, wasn't in as great quantities as it was at that later point that it meant it was this um, sort of really lucrative or, um, yeah, it was seen as a substance that was incredibly valuable and that's why it sort of, like, took on that um, that status as a show of wealth, Um Right, yeah. that makes and sense. And would only really have been available to very, very wealthy people. And that goes back to your initial inspiration of those porcelain figurines, right? Because that Absolutely. in itself... Well, porcelain in itself was a very expensive and um, highly sought-after material. And so to make yeah. that um, as an object which was to hold sugar is kind of like a double whammy of like showing off of your wealth. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and apparently there is like a direct lineage in that those uh, those sugar paste uh, models did directly inform the sort of later porcelain models that would have been made to decorate tables. So Interesting. yes, a direct sort of like design line between yeah. the two. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So when you were going about thinking about using sugar lift etching to communicate some of these histories and stories around um, the enslavement of people and their um, their role in the sugar industry. Mm. What was your approach to communicating those things? Um, I think a big, a big reason that I wanted to sort of embed the materials into the work the sort of as in I wanted to embed the the kind of sugar and the steel as well if we think about industry that was sort of like fueled by that sugar um was so that it was so that I guess um these substances were like really at the heart of the work in every level on every level um and yeah, I don't know. It was quite in some it was a quite a slow process in some ways in that I was really thinking through how to grapple with having these conversations and with ensuring that it was done in the right way. So it was in a cafe space, the the original work, although it's like threaded itself through a lot of my practice since. Um so it was gonna be sort of in the background and lots of the images that I was sort of making, um or through through these etchings, were of the sort of hands and arms of many similar porcelain figurines, um, and so that was sort of thinking a lot about sort of processes of labour as well, and in these sort of gestures, um, which are sort of like gestures of servitude, like they're gesturing towards the bowls um, and presenting them to whoever's like eating from them. Um, and so I was quite like I felt quite un- they're uncomfortable images as it is, and I I was aware that it could be quite problematic to sort of like uh, display these sort of limbs on the wall without like much more context around them and uh, without asking people to sort of like properly interrogate them or confront the uh, conversations within them. Um, and so I think in part that was why I felt it was really important to have the audio there and those conversations with some of the guides who'd done all of this research and had all of these different, um, yeah, these also just very different approaches and sort of relationships to 
to the objects and also we just spoke about sugar as well and you know our primary relationship most people's primary relationship with sugar is in like just eating it and it's so embedded in culinary culture here in the UK like you know cakes biscuits tea um and so I think yeah it's a really nice way in to have some like quite difficult conversations but yeah I felt like I was sort of it was a, it was a difficult process, like gap, grappling with how to nav- navigate that, if you like. Yeah. So we started off. So I did like lots of separate interviews, and we started by speaking about um, a favorite recipe. Don't, don't boil it too I much think. so that it becomes hard. You put so the syrup sort of and the treacle and the butter and the brown sugar, all sugars, <laughs> over a gentle heat. Bring to stir in the flour mixture, mix in the beaten and egg, milky white to clear. Butter, making sure that the butter is melted and the sugar and honey sugar are dissolved. And a pinch of salt. Uh, pour into a baking tin. And, and it's just pure sugar. Um, so most people, yeah, spoke about just a recipe that either they enjoy making themselves or that they grew up with. Um, and yeah, there were there were all sorts um of yeah of different tasty treats and it was really fun to speak about because obviously like people do just love sugar <laughs> for the most uh, part i love i love sweet things i do yes i've got a very sweet too i love sweet things i mm. love desserts that's that i do for my, my shame favorite part of the yes meal. unfortunately i'm salivating right now <laughs> you know just what? thinking about the them that's, fact, I mean, that's why i have uh, problems with tooth, my teeth um, i think, I think my, it stems from childhood i have sam as well an indulger in cakes and biscuits salivating um, right now i for one don't actually have any sugar in my tea uh, my palate always likes some sugar so as long as i know that it's got sugar in it i'm sure i'm gonna like it to some extent one of the I guess one of the nice stories that came out of it was someone speaking about a Caribbean rum cake that their I think it's their brother-in-law would make and it's the secret family recipe and they won't tell anybody (laughs) what the secret ingredients are and I thought yeah that's that was just like a really like beautiful sort of moment of somebody really speaking about some of the like more personal narratives that we have connected to sugar as a substance um, yeah. Mm. And I suppose also taking that substance and building your own stories and your own traditions with it is yeah, perhaps yeah. quite an important part of the whole story of sugar in a way. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Mm. I guess it's really interesting to like think about these conversations. And actually, you could do a spotlight on like any number of materials, which I guess you're doing. <laughs> and like, but pull pull out some of the sort of, uh, yeah, questions of sort of like provenance and like movement and how these things have sort of circulated as well. Um, And they'd reveal so much about like, yeah, where we're situated and how we live and, you know. um, Yeah, and I think it's really, it's a really useful conversation. It's a really interesting conversation to have um, and I feel it it feels very like at the moment, you know, we're in the aftermath of like several recent, um, I guess, murders of like black men um, by American police. And we know that's like an entrenched ongoing problem. And we know it's not a set 
you know, it's not separate from also our sort of uh, experiences in the UK. Um, and I think it's really uh, useful to be able to sort of like trace a line between something that seems as far removed from that as sugar to like current circumstances here today. Um, yeah. And as sugar is such an everyday object is kind of a nice metaphor for the fact that, you know, the this is a systemic problem and we all participate in um, in that system and we all have a part Absolutely. to play to changing that system. Yeah. In, yeah, in doing the sort of research around it, I was finding so many little threads that like sort of connected up lots of different dots. So one of those being like the link between um, slavery, the sugar trade and the industrial revolution, which like I learned about the industrial revolution at school, like everyone else. And I didn't learn that, you know, this was fueled by like the economy that was generated from transatlantic slavery um, and from in large part sugar. And so I think some of those like gaps are really useful to sort of talk about and to like join up the dots to be able to have like a more comprehensive understanding as well of like, yeah, our current, our current like lived experience. Mm. Um, and that's, and when you sort of start to think about, I guess, like the e economic um, sort of, repercussions of that um then you can really see like a ripple effect into the present day I think it was um there was a treasury tweet which came out like a couple of years back which I think the conversation around that has like resurfaced recently um which was um I think it was basically saying like oh don't forget like British taxpayers have still been like paying off the debts of <laughs> abolishing slavery yes. and that was through um sort of compensation to slave owners um right up until 2015 taxpayers have been like paying off those debts um which weren't you know which is like obscene to think about and obscene to think about in terms of like who was being compensated within within that and so yeah, I think lots of these histories as well, which seem really distant or, yeah, uh, removed, are actually like so present and we're sort of like swimming in them um, in a very current way. Exactly. Yeah. And so to think about sugar today, you know, your whole, I suppose, artistic journey with this started with those objects in the V&A Museum, the Victoria and Albert Museum, which in, is mm. in itself an institution of the kind of Victorian time and empire mm -hmm. and all of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And there are definitely, like you said, there's so many stories to be told and there are lots of different ways that we can tell those stories. And one of which is in those institutions. Um, mm. I suppose this is quite a broad question and probably very difficult to answer, but do you have any sense of what, what might be some of the best ways to start amplifying those stories? Is it in museums or is it in artwork like yours or any other ways? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if there are like, yeah, I mean, I think maybe an answer is in like all the ways that 
are physically possible. I mean, there are a lot of conversations around like decolonizing the curriculum. Like, actually, I guess the the starting point or like a fundamental place these conversations should be being had are in schools. So, like, we need to be teaching like a full rounded history um, in the classroom because, yeah, I think a big uh, a big part of like when we think about what is what it is to teach British history is actually it's it's to think about British history expansively and not um, in this kind of very linear um, way that privileges like one colonial narrative. Um, so I think schools is like one one answer. Um, I think. Yeah, I really I really enjoyed doing the the guy the tour guiding in museums and I thought that was a really good useful and important way of like opening up some of the narratives behind these like thousands and thousands of objects which like just have so much to say but you know walking through a museum walking through a museum you're often like overwhelmed by the vast like quantity of stuff and you you know there's just like there's bits of information, but there's like only so much you can take in, and it's it is very difficult to like find a way in. So I think having like someone to just have a chat with about it is like great. And those tours were free, which is really good. I think actually probably not enough people know that like that's there. Um, and the VNA actually had like loads of tours all the time, like every day that were just free. And you know, there's something to be said for like you know they were all run by volunteers and like that can be like questioned as well yeah, yeah. And, and challenged but um but it's definitely a good way for people to sort of start accessing those conversations um but yeah on the other hand there's a lot of artists who are doing some really interesting and I think some quite important work in those areas too um so Cara Walker a quite well-known American artist um who showed recently at the Turbine Hall um, at Tate Modern um, over here. She made a work a few years back now, I think 2014, um, called A Subtlety or The Marvellous Sugar Baby. Um, and it was a huge sort of monumentally sized sugar figurine, sort of, as you can imagine, inspired in part by these like subtleties, these decorative um yeah figures for the table um made out of sugar and so this was the head of a black woman and the body of a lion um and it was made for the domino factory in new york which was a sugar factory which was sort of like no no longer functioning so again like drawing on these histories of sugar um and enslavement and thinking about like the labor that sort of uh, carved uh, carved out um the sort of America of today. Um some other sort of artists working with that. Um Zinzi Minot I know is is doing um a kind of ongoing project, research project called Type Two, thinking about diabetes as well and and the body and, and sugar and um yeah she has a dance based practice. Um yeah lots of things going on. I think uh, an artist called Gala Bell um, made a 
sugar head, uh, what's it called? A, sh- a bust out of sugar um, of Henry Tate, um, uh-huh. I think last year. Um, and yeah, again, thinking about some of those kind of dynamics of sugar and power. Um, I know um, Jennifer Martin as well as another artist working in sort of like video um, and photography and has been doing a series of work thinking about like immigration policy in the UK um, and exploring that through the metaphor of teeth, um, which also sort of like dips into histories of sugar at times. So, yeah. Wow. Such a diverse approach like range of approaches I suppose to this one material (laughs) yeah yeah um so what does sugar mean to you today as we sort of talked about a bit you have an inevitable like disassociation between like the material sugar that you know and like eat um or consume in that way and then like some of the histories of it which for me, are quite present because I'm researching it a lot in my work. Um, but I think for the vast majority of us, it's fairly removed. And lots. I think what's interesting is that a lot of people actually don't know about it, um, which I think is is a funny one when I feel like whenever you know something, it's it can be quite hard to sometimes pinpoint like when you when you found out these things, and like particularly if you've got like an ongoing developing understanding of something um it can feel like quite some of the things can feel quite obvious um but I've yeah I've spoken to some friends who who say like oh god I'd never even thought about that in terms of like afternoon tea or anything and I'm like what (laughs) 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 um so I think yeah there's there's you know some people just don't know about some of those histories and then some people do know about it but it's impossible to hold all of these things in your mind all all the time and on the day to day um and and then again like another relationship I have to sugar is like in the studio and this like process based one um where working with it feels is quite it's quite sensory in a way because like when you screen print the uh the sugar or the treacle onto the plate it smells amazing and I have like a ritual when I open like a new tin of treacle I like have a spoonful first because I'm just like oh I can't not (laughs) (laughs) amazing (laughs) um but yeah so I've got all of these different relationships with it um but yeah, it's difficult to hold them all together at once. I think my my usual one, or like my my main everyday one, is probably the one that most people um, living here have every day, which is like eating a biscuit or like I have sugar every day on my on my um, porridge, which is probably quite bad for me. <laughs> um. So yeah, I think what it probably means to me is. is it's it's a substance which is delicious and addictive and which carries like so much narrative and like historical weight with it and i see it as like a really useful way into having some quite difficult discussions about difficult histories 
So that was the amazing Holly Graham. I'm so happy to have finally got her on the podcast. And thanks very much, Holly, for taking the time to come on. If you've been interested hearing about sugar in this episode, Holly has compiled a recommended reading and listening list, which I've put in the show notes if you want to learn more about it. If you want to see more of her work, her website is www.hollygraham.co.uk and her Instagram is hollycagraham. I also want to say thanks to Holly for allowing me to use some of those audio snippets from her work in the middle of this podcast. If you'd like to hear the full recorded piece, you can have a look on Holly's website, which again is www.hollygraham.co.uk and you can listen to the full thing there. So that's all for this time. If you've enjoyed this episode on sugar, then I recommend that you go back and listen to the previous episode on sugar, which was with artist and researcher Ellie Doney. If you're enjoying the podcast as a whole, it would be great if you would rate and review the podcast. Um, you can come and say hi to us on Twitter. We're at Real Talk. That's R-I-A-L Talk. Or if you want to send a longer message, we've got an email address, which is realtalkpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks as always to Dave Shepard for our wonderful cover art and to Alex Lathbridge for the music mix. Next time we'll be hearing from archaeologist and anthropologist Michael Rivera on Bone. So until then, take care, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time on Handmade. Hi, it's me again. Just before you go, I thought I'd put a little bonus feature on the end of this episode, if you're still listening to the bitter end. I mentioned earlier that Holly and I play in the same band. Well, we've been missing each other a lot over the UK coronavirus lockdown, and we've managed to put a new track together from our bedrooms. On this track, you'll hear from a whole load more of my multi-talented friends. Almost nobody on here, in fact, is playing the instrument that they actually play in our actual band. But anyway... It's been mixed and mastered by Ajay Ratan. So here is Don't Freak Out at Home with our debut lockdown jam called RIP Band Practice, Half an Hour Late. I was sort of imagining like, I want the band back together, cannot wait. Wait, because everyone is always half an hour late. (laughs) Fair enough. reading it more like I want the band back back together Broadman is always late half an hour late band back together I cannot wait band back together I cannot wait wait because everyone is always half an hour late It's always half an hour late. Bound back together, I cannot wait. Wait, because everyone is always half an hour late. Bound back together, I cannot wait. Wait, because everyone is always half an hour late. Bound back together, I cannot wait. Wait, because everyone is always half an hour late.
Half an hour late. Half an hour late. Half an hour late. Half an hour late. Half an hour. Half an hour. Half an hour. Half an hour. Half an hour late. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.